You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Watching social media posts over the last few days, one thing has become unquestionably clear to me. Perhaps you've seen it as well. We all expect, we all hope, we all long that 2021 will be better than 2020. If I had cataloged the posts, maybe some of them were yours, I don't know. Farewell 2020, hello 2021. Everyone was so excited that this difficult year was behind us. And then I came across another post by a friend of mine who is a theologian in Birmingham. And he remarked about this observation, we all want the next year to be better than the last, but he also pointed out that it may not be. It may not be the case that 2021 is the glorious thing that we all hope it is. It might be great, it might be... But things may improve, the world scene might get better, things could, could be spectacular, but there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that global health will improve, that cultural divisiveness will be immediately reconciled just because we flipped a digit on the calendar. And if there's one thing we should have learned in 2020 that we must carry forward into 2021, it is that our satisfaction, our joy, our happiness, our contentment can never be found in anything circumstantial. My satisfaction cannot be lodged in my circumstances. My satisfaction can't be lodged in my ability to do the things that I would prefer to do or go the places I might prefer to go or gather with the people I might prefer to gather with or anything. Circumstances, events, can never be the ground of my joy. If that's the case, then we've got to ask, what is the ground of our satisfaction, our joy, our happiness? And we all know the answer in principle, don't we? Like we we kind of know the Sunday school answer. Jesus is the answer, right? But on Monday, when, when things are going badly, or somebody gets a positive test, and we have to shut ourselves in for a couple of weeks, or, or, or you know, our politicians are deadlocked in this, this frustrating battle, or... or, or our loved one goes into the hospital, whatever it is, like it's very difficult sometimes to connect that 
Jesus is the answer principle to the way I actually feel this afternoon or tomorrow morning or later this week. There's some disconnect there in our lives. We know Jesus is the ground of our joy. We know Jesus is the one in whom we are to be satisfied and content. But in the moment when circumstances are uncertain, it's very difficult sometimes to connect the principle with reality. So the question then becomes, how do we share his joy? Day in, day out, with all the curveballs that get thrown at us and the things that are canceled and the challenges that present themselves, we've talked about them, we've thought about them, they are ever before us. How do we participate in the joy that Jesus offers, that rock-solid, consistent satisfaction, contentment, when everything else is up and down? That is a question that arises for us in the 12th chapter of Hebrews. And the answer that we are offered in the 12th chapter of Hebrews is straightforward. If we want to talk about participating in the consistency of Christ's joy, there is a crucial aspect of his life that must not be missed. We've got to bear with this reality and wrestle with this reality and give ourselves to this reality that Jesus shares his character with us so that we can share his joy. Jesus shares his character so that we can share his joy. Now, the character of Jesus has been prominent throughout the book of Hebrews. As we've looked at a variety of texts, some longer, uh, the character of Jesus has been consistently amplified all the way through this text. And one of the things about his character, one of the things about his life that I hope you've seen over the last few weeks is the unity of his life. When we first started looking at Hebrews early in December, several of you came to me and said, Hebrews in, at Christmas? Like, what's that about? Never in my life have I heard a Christmas sermon on Hebrews. And as we kind of reflected on these things together, I think we began to learn together that, that Hebrews is manifestly about the incarnation. It is about Jesus who has come. And it is about the significance of His coming and what it means for Him to be a human being born with a mother to walk in our footsteps and to experience our joys and our sorrows so that he can be a faithful priest for us, a faithful high priest for us, so that he can stand in solidarity with us, so that he can bring us into the presence of his Father and our Father without this full unity of his life. None of that's possible, and without his coming, None of that is possible. So everything hinges on Bethlehem in this way. Everything hinges on Jesus being fully God, also being fully human. And that is the heart of the Christmas story, and that is the heart of the, that is the incarnation. One of the things we do, though, sometimes is we kind of separate out 
the sections of Jesus' life, don't we? So we have Christmas on the calendar, and we have Easter on the calendar. And at Christmas time, we talk about sweet little baby Jesus, and there are nativities, and there are usually in non-pandemic years, there are kids, and they're in like shepherd's costumes, and some, somebody's got like crooked wings, and their angel nativity play, and, and there's a baby doll wrapped up in a towel, and sandals, and kids, and all these things. And if you're lucky, somebody brought a real sheep, Right? And that's sweet little baby Jesus, and he comes in December. And when January rolls around, he stays in December. And we fast forward a couple of months, depending on the calendar. April, sometimes May. And we get to Holy Week, and we get to Good Friday, and we get to the cross. And by the time we get to the cross, we don't often think about sweet little baby Jesus. Because that's sweet, and the cross is ugly. And so we kind of shift out and section off these different parts of Jesus' life. And we don't do it intentionally. We don't sort of automatically do it. But we, we, take, we take the birth of Jesus and we put it over here. And we take the death and resurrection of Jesus and we put it over here. And we don't always spend very much time on the relationship between the birth of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus and His ascension and how all of these things go together. One of the things I hope that's happened as we've reflected on these crucial passages in the book of Hebrews together over these five weeks, is that we have seen the absolute essential significance of the unity of Jesus' life. The one who was born of Mary, who came, is the one who endured the cross, who has been raised, who has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, the one who was born in Bethlehem, is the one who prays for you at this moment. Here I am and my brothers and sisters that you have given me. We can't have the exalted intercessor without the suffering Savior and the resurrected Lord. And we can't have the suffering Savior and the resurrected Lord without the incarnation and the manger. And I want to invite you to see Jesus not just as the guy who died for me, but as the one who descended, who has come. Not because He needed to, not because he was required to, not because he owed us something, but simply out of the abundance of perfect, eternal, trinitarian love. He came. He descended. His infiniteness was captured in an infant body. Because he loves you. And he had to deal with brothers and sisters. And he had to deal with people opposing him. And he had to deal with disciples who didn't always get it the first time he explained it. And he, and he, he was perfected, Hebrews says, in his suffering by all from a, Not that he needed anything in his deity, but he had to become like us, to understand what it means to be us, to understand what it feels like when circumstances go nuts. So that in 2020, He can pray for you before His Father and yours. So I hope that we come through this Christmas season and 
Easter will be here before we know it. But as we do that, that we're thinking about the full unity of the life of church. This is the focus in Hebrews, and it hasn't been lost on the church. Uh, there's a little book I try to read maybe once a year, sometimes at Christmas, sometimes at Easter, called On the Incarnation. It's 1,700 years old. You know if they're still printing it after 1,700 years, it probably has something worth reading in it. And so I try to read this little book. It's very short. It just took a, a day or two, a couple of days, by this guy named Athanasius. And he said this, and it was a stunning, again, I've read it before, but again, it's just important to be reminded Athanasius said the supreme object of his coming was to bring about the resurrection of the body. Now that's a short quote, and we could read through it and just kind of, okay, that's, yeah, he came, resurrection, that's typical Christian stuff. But, but reflecting on that, it, especially reading Hebrews, I saw there in that one sentence you get both ends of Jesus' life. Christmas, he came. Why did he come? He came. Bethlehem, manger, incarnation, stable, shepherds, all the stuff, right? He came with an end in mind to bring about the resurrection of the body. So the church at its best through the years has seen this thing that we are seeing, this unity of Jesus' life. It's not helpful if we kind of separate things off, because if we do, we miss his character. We miss the character of his life. If we just see this bit of his life or that bit of his life and we don't think about the whole thing, then there are aspects of his fullness that are not going to be available to us. So what is his character? What does it look like? The character of Jesus is captured in this perfect, unfailing, continual, he never stops doing this at any moment in the Gospels, at any moment in his life. His character is constantly marked by his perfect self-giving love. Go home and take a little time this afternoon. Just read through the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest one. You can knock it out in an hour or two, maybe. And again and again and again, self-giving love, self-giving love, self-giving love. That is why he is called the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, because he endured suffering and pain for us from the first moment that his baby body breathed in this world and the one who is infinite in glory who spoke and brought creation into existence cried out for the first time from that self-denying condescension to all those times that he put up with frustrations, to all those times that he patiently endured the foolishness and folly of his followers, to the cross itself. This is his character. Perfect, unfailing, self-giving, self-sacrificing 
take up his cross and pioneer our faith love again and again and again this is who he is and what is his motivation why does he do it not because he needs us the son of god is perfectly sufficient in every way apart from any created thing the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exists forever in perfect self-giving love. God doesn't need me, and he doesn't need you. Why does he do it? Hebrews says he did it for the sake of the joy set before him. He endured the cross, he endured its shame, and he, he disregarded its shame looking forward to the moment when he would take his seat at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And you know because you've been working through Hebrews that that position, that, that place where Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, means that he has walked into the heavenly holiest place behind the curtain with his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood to make atonement for us so that he can be a faithful high priest, so that he can call your name before his father and our father and say, here I am, here are your children, here we are. He prays for us from that position enthroned at the right hand of God. He prays for us. And so there's something about and we've talked a lot about this over the last few weeks, but we haven't talked about it this way. There is something about that position, that goal, that is his joy. You want to stop and say, like, what makes Jesus happy? What makes Jesus satisfied? What makes him, like, what is what is so important to him? What is so worth it? What is so valuable that he will endure shame and public humiliation and the weight of our sin and the infinite burden of the gore and horror of the cross and before that, the, the self-condescension and the, the, the limitations that he takes on. Like, What is such a big deal? What is so spectacular? What is so valuable? What is so joyful? That he would do all of that, and the answer is, he endured the cross for the joy of becoming your high priest. It's a relational concept, isn't it? He doesn't just endure the joy so that he can like come down from heaven for a little while and suffer a lot and then go back up to his father. The new thing is he brings his family with him. And that is at the heart of Hebrews from chapter 1 all the way through. His joy is the fact that he gets to bring you into the presence of his Father. Joy is not for Jesus a selfish thing. Joy is not for Jesus to, I get a throne at the right hand of God the Father. And we, we might come at it that way. There's power, there's authority, there's, there's status, there's elevation. And Jesus' joy is, he's not just, he's not out for the status. I mean, he's infinite before this. Why? He doesn't need anything. His joy is the fact that you come with him. 
that we come with him. So hear this again. Who, for the sake of the joy that was said before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from, against himself from sinners, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. His joy, friends, his joy is in being able, having come and lived an incarnate human life. His joy is in calling the names of his brothers and sisters before his father. Here I am and the children you have given me. Keep your eyes on that Jesus if you want to see his character. Perfect, unblemished, other-oriented, self-giving love. Jesus' character is revealed. And as the passage proceeds, Jesus' character becomes a model for Christian character. Whatever's true of Jesus in his attitude, in his endurance, in his perseverance, is the model, the paradigm, the example for believers. So what does he do? He endures hostility from sinners in verse 3. And in considering that, in setting our eyes on him, in offering ourselves to him, we are exhorted. Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. And how badly do we need to hear those words? I mean, how many of us have lost heart over the last nine months? I mean, how many people have lost a lot? Jobs, loved ones, homes. may not grow weary or lose heart. And then we're told in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And this is one place where we see, you know, like Jesus' suffering is not quite the same as ours, is it? <laughs> because who did struggle against sin to the point of shedding his blood? Jesus. And Hebrews wants to say, look, you set your eyes on him. And you remember that whatever you're dealing with, whatever your struggle is, it is significant, it is serious, you will have to endure it. We're not going to mince words, we're not going to pretend it's not important, we're not going to say, ah, it's not that big of a... Look how serious Jesus struggled, you're not even close. Like, that's not what's being said here. If you have to endure it, you have, the, the struggle is being acknowledged, the, the, the fact that you might grow weary, that you might be discouraged, those things are real and they must be dealt with, however... It is crucial to know that if, if that's significant, what Jesus did is even more so. And if his suffering was even greater, if he resisted sin and the temptation to re just forget this, right? I mean, after all, we have the garden, we have Jesus. If there's a way for this cup to pass from me, by all means. But he resisted that, didn't he? 
and embraced and endured the cross. And his blood was shed. And if he can do that, he can care for us in our time of weariness and in our struggle. He can offer comfort. He can enable us to persevere. Yes, we struggle. He has struggled more. And that means that we face nothing that he is not equipped to handle and to offer comfort in the midst of it. This is his character. This is who he is. The heart of this text is about Jesus' character being reproduced in his people. And when his character is reproduced in his people, when he shares that with us, we come to share in his joy. Look at some of the parallels. Verse 3, in chapter 12, verse 3, consider him who endured such hostility. In verse 7, you endure trials for the sake of discipline. So you get this kind of parallel command, like look at Jesus, he endured. And what does that mean? It means you can endure. So whatever happens in his life, whatever character he exhibits, that can be manifest in your life. That character can show up in your body when you are experiencing trials, when things not, are not going the way you wanted, when you are suffering, when you are discouraged, when you are weary, when you just want to weep, when you want to go and find a closet where no one can find you and just bury yourself in solitude and sorrow. Jesus endured and He is not far away. And He can enable you to persevere in that moment. His character that endures for the joy set before him, that, character, that aspect of his character, that faithfulness, he doesn't just want to tell you about it. He doesn't just want you to see it in him. His desire is to reproduce it in his people. Jesus' desire in the scriptural vision of the Christian life is that the character of the Son of God be reproduced in the bodies of the children of God. This happens in different ways, doesn't it? You may have noticed how many times the word discipline showed up in this text. You may have been discouraged by how many times the word discipline showed up in this text. For us, discipline is typically a negative term, right? We tell our kids, do that again, I'm going to discipline you. And we think of discipline, like in, if you get disciplined in school, that's never good, is it? So for us, discipline is primarily negative. You do something wrong, you get disciplined. But discipline is bigger than correction, isn't it? And when we're reading the Bible, we need to think about discipline in two different ways. We need to think about corrective discipline, and that is here. But we also need to think about formative discipline. Corrective discipline, when our kids go astray, and we want to bring them back on the path, we know what that looks like. It's an expression of our love. Formative discipline is not something that happens when they go astray or when they do something they shouldn't or when we do something we shouldn't. Formative discipline is cultivated through practices and habits. 
Let's read the scriptures together with our kids. Let's uh, sing hymns and choruses together as a family. Let's talk about what the Lord has done. Let's pray together. Let's uh, learn to talk about the gospel. Let's learn to identify God's grace in our lives. And so every day, if our home is kind of built around this formative discipline, then the character of Jesus, in little bits day by day, gets implemented in our lives. And we know how this works in other parts of life. It's not strange to us. We just don't always call it discipline. I couldn't help but think of uh, high school athletics. When I was uh, at Opelika High School, we had this thing on the football team called the shoots. Anybody know what the shoots are? Nobody? I'll tell you about it. It was horrifying. It's this metal pipe thing with five slots. And so it would probably run from about, you know, that music stand to the, that thing over there. And Five offensive linemen had to get in it. It was about this tall. And you would kind of have a, a coach would blow a whistle and you'd have to run through it. And the goal was to run through without smashing your head on the metal pipe. And the point of it was to teach you when the ball is snapped to come off lower than the guy you're trying to block. Right? So if you spend 30 or 45 minutes every day in practice learning how to stay low off the snap, chances are on Friday nights... When there's somebody bigger than you on the other side of the ball, you'll stay low and you can get the advantage on the play. It's discipline, isn't it? It's not corrective discipline, it's formative discipline. If you hadn't done anything wrong, sometimes you had to do the shoots if you did something wrong, it was also punishment at times, but most of the time, <laughs> it was a formative discipline, right? You know those things that athletes run, there's the ropes and you have to pick your feet up really fast and run through them. Just did that, sprained my ankle a couple of times, it was very uncomfortable. Same kind of, like, we do this. Learning to read is formative discipline. You want a life that's going to go well? You probably need to learn how to read. And so what do you do? Well, you spend some time learning letters and sounds and phonics and words, like formative discipline. Learning to pray is a formative discipline. Worshiping is a formative discipline. Are we going to make sure that our weeks are marked by rhythms of corporate worship? Because it has a formative effect. When the people of God gather and worship Him and declare His goodness and declare His glory and sing and pray and preach and share in the sacraments, it does something to us. It makes us into a certain kind of people. When we gather in Sunday school or, or a band meeting, a small discipleship group, and we say, hey, you know, I'm having a hard time with this. I need you to pray for me. Or, hey, like those are formative moments of formative discipline. When we go on a mission trip or serve across town at the soup kitchen in Jesus' name, those practices do something to us. And they are opportunities to be formed in the character of Jesus. And here's the thing, friends. This is how Christ-like character is formed, and this is how joy is sustained. Right? Jesus endured, and he endured for the sake of the joy. And the joy is bringing his brothers and sisters into the presence of his Father. And then you are called upon to endure. And you endure so that you can be with the family in the presence of the Father. 
And that endurance comes with practices, disciplines. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? Like not just correcting you when you do something wrong, but forming you. This is what it looks like. Here's a hard thing. It's difficult, but we're going to trust the Lord and we're going to pray in this moment. We're going to ask him to give us wisdom and we're going to ask him to be with us. And if you don't have that discipline, if that's not there, then like, don't expect to really fit in the family. That's a little bit worrying, isn't it? If you don't have that discipline in which all children share, you're illegitimate. And so we're invited to reflect on these formative realities of our lives. Like, am I cultivating closeness with Jesus? Am I trusting him? Am I seeing him? Am I meditating on his character, on his coming, on his living, on his dying, on his rising, on his intercession for me? Are these the things that shape my worldview? Are these, is his character the thing that shapes my approach to life? Or does my world crash after an election? Like if Jesus' character determines the shape of our lives, then no circumstantial event will be able to shake our satisfaction or joy in him. And if we are satisfied and joyful in him, then we are ready to engage the world for his glory and for his namesake. But if we're just constantly distraught because of our circumstances, we are not focused on his mission, are we? So Jesus shares his character. All that he is, he shares that with us to reproduce it in our lives. And he does it so that we can share his joy. Jesus shares his character so we can share his joy. The question then becomes... Do we want his joy? A friend of mine said to me once, we were talking about some study habits and uh, sort of some of the disciplines that go with the Christian life and how we can get easily distracted by, you know, media and news reports over what's happening up in Jordan-Hare Stadium or something like that. I really ought to be working on my sermon or writing this article or something, but hey, you know, there's Facebook. And he said something, as we were talking about just, you know, the importance of discipline and sort of carving out time and focusing on these things, formative things, he said something to me that stuck with me for years. He said, we always do what we most want to do. A lot of people say, well, I really want to do that. I really want to do that. But then we do something else. Well, we didn't really, I mean, we may want to, but we want this other thing more. We always do what we most want to do. Always. The thing we do, the thing that wins, is the thing we wanted to do. We speak harshly to our kids, we always do what we most want to do. We choose to read our Bibles in the morning when it's, you know, it'd just be so easier to skip it today, we always do what we most want to do. 
So the question then becomes, do we want his joy? We say we do. We all say we do. But when it comes down to those formative moments where we have to decide, in, for this hour I'm going to give myself to Jesus or I'll just snooze. And then I'm really saying, I don't really want your joy, Jesus. I'd rather have my pillow. We always do what we most want to do. The character of Jesus in his people is forged, forged in trial. 2020 should have been one of the most character, Jesus' character-forming years for the church in modern history. I don't know that it was, maybe in some places, but it should have been. What should we learn from that? Well, whatever happens in 2021, let's make it the year where the church is formed where the character of Jesus is embodied in the people of God. Let's lift our drooping heads. Verse 12, strengthen our weak knees, trusting that the Lord Jesus Christ has grace that is sufficient for us, perfectly sufficient. That he has straight paths for our feet, that our joints will not be lame, that our lives will be marked by his peace. And then we read all the way through verse 14 because there's this word. Pursue peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, that word holiness, that's the word that describes Jesus' character. That self-giving love. That I will endure shame for you. I will endure suffering for you. I will endure all of these great things in all of their torment for you. That's his holiness. That's his character. That's his joy. That's what he wants to share. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.